our goal as a website is not just to fulfill your search need, but also to inspire you. Oh, you just buy a desk. Maybe you want to buy a chair to match the style of that desk. And under the hood, that is how the AI comes into the equation and help you to find something and maybe you will buy together. It will be a win-win for customer and ours. Welcome to Leading AI Products, a show where I talk to fellow AI leaders about their journey in transforming data and AI ideas into products. I'm your host, Sandeep Uttamchandani, Chief Product Officer at Unravel Data, co-founder of AI for Everyone, a nonprofit, and author of O'Reilly's book, The Self-Service Data Roadmap. In each episode, I share conversations with fellow AI product leaders and go deeper on a broad range of topics involving technology, teams, product execution, challenges encountered, and really the takeaway lessons that you can apply in your AI product journey. My guest today is Chu Cheng, CDO at Etsy. In this episode, I talked to Chu Cheng about his battle scars related to recruiting and building a data science team. Chu Cheng leads the global data organization responsible for data science, AI innovation, machine learning, and data infrastructure at Etsy. Prior to Etsy, Chu Cheng has led various data roles, um, including Amazon, Intuit, Rukten, and eBay. Uh, Chu Cheng is a PhD with multiple published papers in AI ML conferences. So very excited to have Chu Cheng in our episode today. Hey, Chi Cheng, welcome to the show. Hey, Sandeep, nice to see you again. Tell a little bit about your background and also a little bit about what Etsy does. Yes, um, currently I'm a chief data officer at Etsy. And Etsy.com is an e-commerce place where we sell a lot of handmade items and vintage items online. Yeah, I mean, time flies, you know, certainly 20 years flies. I, I get my PhD from UCLA in computer science and um, my background is on search engine to begin with. And search is where uh, a lot of AI innovation started. And um, I remember the time we call it the statistical learning, basically all the AI is based on statistic and eventually evolved to today, we have a lot of this deep learning on neural network technology. Um, I come from a background, I was an engineer for many years and become a scientist. And after PhD, I have been working in the field on AI machine learning for my whole career. And of course, currently I'm a executive, I'm doing most of the management job, but as a technical executive, uh, I also supervise technology and also uh, determining the platform technology which are all the foundation of building a good AI product. Chu um, Cheng, what are some of the you know, key use cases where you are innovating using the power of AI today? You know, I always joke about this century or these decades in particular is the decades of AI. Almost everything people use today um, on Etsy.com is powered by AI. It's just like how deep they are powered by AI, even some based on more naive solutions, some based on very complicated solutions. 
But I think if you go to any e-commerce website when you try to buy something, the moment you type, I want to buy a face mask and it hits search, you are actually already like uh, getting experience power by machine learning. And I use AI machine learning interchangeably in this podcast, but uh, generally speaking, it's a process that uh, we're using data to tell you what you might be looking for. Just like a Google when you search a keyword. And I think that's probably always the first contact when you uh, use any website. The moment you search for a keyword and everything you see on first page is handpicked by machine. And that's the kind of the most common use case of AI in my opinions these days. That's fantastic. So let's drill deeper um, into this use case. Maybe to level set more as a baseline, if you can start off with in the early days, how this was implemented. Uh, this is when you know AI ML and obviously using that interchangeably was uh, more nascent. Yeah, you know, the if we bring back us back to 10, 15 years ago, um, like uh, the old days, Yahoo doesn't have a search engine. They have a taxonomy. You go to a catalog, you try to looking for the things you need. And when you get more and more website, web page, people feel they need to have a way to search for like a, a website they are looking for. And I remember when I was a student, we actually using this kind of full text search. And back then there are these kind of KMP algorithms and there are a lot of algorithms that tell you how to find a keyword when you have lots of uh, amount of content. And later there's a breakthrough called inverted index. Basically just like index card on the book, on the backside of the book. You look for a keyword that they point out to a page and then you find out where you need. But the problem of this solution is that what if like a keyword you search for, there are tons of millions of matching results. So the problem is not about not having results, but having too many results. And that's how AI comes from. So the innovation of the Google actually today seems to be a common sense we call the page rank is basically assuming that uh, uh, every website is connected to each other and figure out where people pointing to and give them higher scores. And that sounds like a naive, but uh, under the hood is uh, a usage of AI. It's using statistics to guess how likely when you search for a keyword, you will end up with stopping at one website. And by modeling such kind of behavior, which in the old day we call random surf models, and this kind of uh, process is the, the core of a search engine. And, and of course, uh, with AI, you can optimize for like say, uh, click through way, how likely people will click a link on the first page. And then your ranking naturally evolve based on user signal or user click. And this become the foundation of this kind of, uh, I will call good circle of improving your algorithm. And everything happened here is automatically and and, and to come on human being, they will feel this is a machine learning or AI, but under the hood, it's actually a power by all the computers, computing power, trying to predict your action next and trying to serve the most likely action on the top for you. The good old days of information retrieval. Yes, um, we call it information retrieval, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, as we fast forward uh, today, you know, as you were mentioning, there is there is a AI ML footprint in all or pretty much every functionality which is on an e-commerce site. So if we can start double clicking on what does the experience look like today? 
in, and, and maybe also touching on some of the key technology building blocks, um, th that would be very useful. Of course, um, maybe we can talk more about recommendations. I using recommendation because it sounds like a broader terms and there are top three things come to my mind. And the first thing is um, the traditional way when we call recommendation, it's just like when you watch a movie on Netflix, I know you watch this movie, you finish this movie, and maybe you give a good score of these movies. And very few people watch the movie again, again, again. So what you are looking for is what should I watch next? And this kind of inspirations, um, traditionally, uh, we're using a technique called um, matrix factorization. I mean, I don't want to make everyone fall asleep, but uh, under the hood, you can think about, it's like playing a game is you have a matrix, there's X and Y, and X is the user, and Y is the movies. And on every cell in this matrix or in this table, it's the likelihood that the person to give a score. And of course, to begin with, you only watch maybe one or two movies. And the job of AI is to guessing that uh, what if you watch this movie that you haven't seen, what's the likely score you are going to get? And, and, and how to solve these, um, you know, like uh, the, the most uh, um, basic skill student learned at the school called single value decomposition. And I'm not going to go to the technical detail, but uh, fundamentally is using this kind of mathematical linear algebra concept is to using this kind of matrix computation to help to figure out how likely people is going to love another items based on the known information. And the whole this kind of math today are all computed by this GPU, CPU, these very super computers. So in the past, that may take a human being to take many months to calculate this metric computation. And with the powerful machine, this kind of projection on score were done instantly. And those kind of like a guessing process eventually power a lot of things when you purchase item on an e-com site like Etsy. And then we're using your purchase log or what you just buy to guess other items you may also like. And this is kind of the fundamental of recommendation. I call it inspiration. So because our goal as a website is not just to fulfill your search need, but also to inspire you. Oh, you just buy a desk. Maybe you want to buy a chair to match the style of the desk. And under the hood, that is how the AI comes into the equation and help you to find something and maybe you will buy together. It will be a win-win for customer and ours. How did you get started? Um, what was the iteration loop in terms of experimenting, trying out for correctness, um, considering other dimensions of privacy and so on? So maybe if you can double click on what did the journey look like? Yes, that's actually a very brilliant question. Um, in machine learning, sometimes people refer this as a cold star problem. Is at the very beginning, you have very little information about either a product or an item or a users. And it's just like you meet someone the first time. It's very hard for you to guess like what they will be interested. So naturally it's much easier when you have more history about a user or items. And today what actually, um, there are two kind of generic solutions to this cold start problem. 
The one in industry which is very common is um, we work with many other uh, company that uh, provide training data. To give example about what is training data is that uh, we definitely can, uh, for example, send two items to a human being. And of course we pay them and they can tell us whether these two things looks good when they're put together or not, right? And you can collect human generated or human annotated data. This is something you can solve your co-star problem by using vendors. There are a lot of vendors. Um, we, I recently gave a talk in Scale AI. Uh, Scale AI is a company, for example, to provide a lot of labels for a computer image. And there are also some traditional, uh, there are tons of companies provide this label. And all, sometimes you can just purchase this label data online. And this will give you some uh, kind of starting point to create a baseline, or at least to have your machine to learn from the data. I always think about um, the best way to think about AI and machine learning is to go back about how computers solve the problem. In the old days, you hire a software engineer. And the software engineer job is write a code to take input and process the input and give you some output. And machine learning at the core is to revert this process is that I don't tell you the code, but I tell the input and I tell the output and the output is the data you just get annotated. And you ask a machine to come up with the code. So it's kind of counterintuitive, but under the hood, machine learning is not, nothing more than reverse this process by teaching your kids, you tell, you do this behavior, it's a good behavior, you get a candy, you do this bad behavior, you get a punishment. And imagine the kid learn how to operate in the real world. And it's a similar technology AI is trying to learn today, especially when people talk about deep learning using neural network to learn or to do AI, is to emphasize the, the process of giving enough input and enough output and have a machine to systematically to learn how it should function. And that is basically the core or the principle of AI. And I usually joke about it's called software 2.0 paradigm. Can you share some experiences on the labeling side uh, with respect to accuracy, impact of incorrect labels on the model building process and, and any takeaways just on that part of the process? Yeah, labeling sounds easy. Like uh, you give some data to some human being and they tell you whether the score is one or zero. I guess many people who sometimes uh, go to a website, they want to know whether you are a human being, they show up some pictures and say, okay, click anything here is an airplane to prove you are a human being. You are already provide training data in that process. You can think in that way. So at Etsy, um, to give example is, um, I mentioned about search, maybe I can uh, give this uh, so example because this will apply for also the recommendation is if I want to know whether, um, for example, uh, items, it's, a, it's a, like say a pencil, it's a good result when people search for gift, right? Then I can certainly you know, ask a human being to label whether this is appropriate or not appropriate or something in between. And you can pick any scale, like it can be one to five or it can be one to 10, depending on your use case. But the, 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 the first step you need to do is to define the rule of labeling. So the, the first hard part is that the, 
you need a domain expert, your product manager, you have designer. Like if your goal is to solve a problem, you write the principle how humans should label because human will follow your script and basically make a decision for you. So the step number one is to write down those rule or I call guidelines. And these guidelines will be then sent to human to train them to make sure that they know the guidelines like the law of operation. So they can start to help you to produce the labeling data. The second part is actually tricky is we have millions or hundreds of millions of items. It is impossible we send every items to human to label. So the next step is how you pick the most useful items for human to make a judgment. And naturally, the ideal case is you want to have a good coverage on your inventory. So at this moment, uh, the most uh, kind of common solution is first apply some unsupervised like learning. So when I say unsupervised learning is a machine learning technique, you don't need any uh, training data. And, and unsupervised learning, one of the popular one called clustering is basically putting something similar together, right? So you can easily put something similar together and then probably all the desk will be put together, all the pencil will be put together, all the chair will be put together, all the clothes and wedding dress will be putting together. When you start putting things together, at the beginning, you have hundreds of thousands of like uh, items, now probably become hundreds or thousands of group. And then you can do stratify simply. Basically you can put, you can pick one randomly from each of the cluster. And then you can create a, the initial set of like a, the label target. In such a way, you will be able to basically cover the entire inventory space with depending on how much budget you have and have human beings to provide their labels. And then you can then build a model on top of those labels. Or sometimes you can do better is that uh, you can uh, decide like uh, how likely human made a mistake Maybe it's easy for human to tell it's a cat or a dog, but maybe it's very hard for human to tell there are two different kinds of birds. So in that cases, you may want to have more training data labeled with birds pictures and much less uh, training data for cats and dogs. I think this is basically a few techniques people can use so that they can get the highest ROI when they try to invite human to provide training data. Uh, I'll pick on this example further. So let's let's take an example of the pencil. And you know, there's a taxonomy uh, in some sense. So let's say on day one, we only refer to it as a pencil and we label all the data. Now, let's say we have a taxonomy change. We have a wooden pencil and a mechanical pencil. Uh, and we want to further distinguish there. What's what's that process? Now you have data labeled as pencils. So is there is there some um, solution or flexibility or extensibility that you try to build in? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned one of the key challenges, which I call, um, like I remember in my career, um, there is a moment that we say, is chocolate a candy? Or chocolate is a chocolate. Oh my God, like at the beginning, our customers say, yes, because I'm cis candy and chocolate is our product. So chocolate is a candy. And when I talk to another customer who don't sell chocolate as candy, they say, no, I don't want the chocolate to be part of the candy, right? So what the reality is, um, many people think of technology 
and split the taxonomy is the solution. But the reality is not about taxonomy itself. The reality is that the, the, the guideline will evolve over time. And taxonomy is just part of the guideline. Usually your guideline, you have a taxonomy when you create a guideline. So there's no silver bullet you can solve this problem. But there are some technique or experience we learned from um, the field. The first thing is that you have to do version control. You at least need to know this training data was generated by lead guidelines, right? So this is the very basic things you have to do. The second thing you have to do is that it's easy if you can define concrete. So try not to solve all the problem. When you define labeling, try to narrow your scope. For example, if your labeling is about tell something is a dog or is not a dog, then you can always easy to reuse these training data for other purpose. Because you create a very simple guideline. It's a binary decision. And you are asking something is a dog or not a dog. And on the other hand, if you're trying to um, set up a guideline that is kind of vague and really depends on the customer, you are going to toss those training data away when you change your guidelines. So I think the hard part here is more about uh, having uh, experience in managing your guideline by having versioning, by trying to, uh, I call scoping, and basically narrow down like your definition, like how you want human to add the, the value. And the third thing is that uh, to accept the fact that uh, your taxonomy will evolve, your guideline will evolve. And you know, one thing which actually also evolves is the person who label your data. So you may have a kind person who label everything as relevant at the beginning. And then the next time when you send the same data to the same company, you have a new people who label and this person can be very harsh. So anything suddenly become irrelevant. So the human being is not going to give you a consistent rating all the time. So by accepting the noise in your training data is part of the success or like the, the secret sauce that every leaders in AI machine learning should be aware is we all want the golden, like a very perfect, accurate training data. But the reality is that any human generated data already created some bias or noise. And there are a lot of paper and research talk about how to minimize them. And I think I won't go to the detail, but just to call out this kind of thing are all part of the process when you try to solve the, the model building. And recently in a conference, uh, Andrew Ng also mentioned about uh, sometimes the true improvement on accuracy comes from the improvement on the data labeling process or having more data. And while it is very cool to think about Wow, we have a lot of cool deep learning. We have very powerful machine can come up with a lot of fancy algorithm. But oftentimes in practice, especially in industrial, I would say these are 50-50, they are equal weight. You need to put attention on how you generate the data. Just like you put attention to create the best machine learning models to predict the good results. So you have to have both. This is a good segue into the next part of the process now, which is model building. Um, can you share some of your experiences in the during the model building process with respect to accuracy uh, and, and again, noise in the data? 
and some of the things that you applied there. You know, this, uh, this topic is very interesting in a way is I changed my perspective when I was a student or a scientist. And also I changed my perspective when I become more business executive. And also, I also changed my perspective again when I um, run uh, or lead this uh, entire uh, machine learning at a company like uh, Etsy. There are many things will change. Like, uh, for example, there's a holiday season is coming, right? So apparently the, the, the shopping pattern during Christmas will be very different from Mother's Day. So if you create a machine learning algorithm based on Christmas, try to using the machine learning model for Mother's Day, the result is not going to look very good. So there's this seasonality you need to handle. There's a model drifting, which means that the, the model you create for, like say Monday to Friday, may not work very well on weekend, or like a model will degenerate over time because you know, your user base shift. And also, or maybe there's a marketing campaign going on. When you think about a model here, are we predicting customer behavior? Or if you can give an example of what the model is trying to predict, um, that will build the story better. Yes. So thinking about uh, marketing emails you get, we all see a lot of this marketing email, especially during the holiday seasons, right? You get email from definitely Etsy, you get email from Macy's, you get email from all the these like shops you ever buy before. And what we actually trying to do is based on how much we know about you as a person, your transactions, your preference, or your, your favorites, or where, how you spend your time on the website. We try to know who you are and then do our best to find something that is valuable for you and your family. I will give a very concrete example. Let's say every year for me, around August, I'm going to buy a gift for my mom because it's the months that uh, I want to buy a gift for her for birthday, right? And this birthday will always appear in the same months, right? So if machine learning know someone always come to buy gift, around the same time of the year. It's kind of personalization because we know who you are and when you want to buy a gift for important people to you. And I think this is just like one concrete example of uh, knowing the users and understand their kind of, a, kind of a, I call it a metaphor you is that I think this is where uh, the, the trend is going is with the technique and the computer being cheaper, we can very, good in customized models on understanding who you are and then give you a, a kind of a unique experience because we know more about you. So ideally, it's just like when you watch your social media, the more you spend time with an app, they start to know like what kind of video you want to spend more time with like the, the app. And this is exactly more like a self-enforcement loop to teach machine to know who you are and what you like. And we use the same thing for e-commerce as well. As a user, I may be browsing logged in versus logged out. Um, that would be the difference. I could be browsing through different catalogs um, and kind of identifying who I am, um, you know, more in terms of like, you know, sort of being able to have the, the tracking cookie 
So maybe if you can share additional details as, in terms of this challenge, um, especially as you're trying to segment customers um, and in terms of giving them the right experience. You know, this is a very uh, hot topic this day about privacy. Um, probably if you are in the technology space, especially if you do advertisement, many people were aware that the, like if you're using iPhone, Apple will ask you explicitly, are you okay for the app to track your behavior, right? So I think the point here is that in the old days, many years ago, privacy is not really a thing. So that's true that in old days, there are many techniques, like you mentioned, using cookie, using a user checking ID without their kind of consent, trying to check their behaviors. Of course, there's pros and cons. I always joke about, oh my God, I just search cruise vacation on Google and suddenly, oh my Facebook is all about cruise. How can they know I'm looking for cruise? Someone must leak my information and maybe not. It's just like a, somehow they know who I am by checking some ID behind the scene. But these things become, because privacy now is, 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 um, is, is more about right not and also even obligation or sometimes in some state it's become a law so um, the choice is giving back the, to the customer and i think the goodness of etsy is that uh, we always respect people's privacy so you know most people using our app so we know who they are they're logging we know their username so naturally know their user id and if they visit our website without logging in then we can still do personalization but we can do session personalization for example, you come in, you keep clicking for wedding stuff. We know you're probably looking for wedding gift or wedding dress. We can still try to kind of give you more recommendation based on your in-section like, uh, activities. And that's what we do is by assuming every section is a new person to respect the privacy. So those are still achievable. But once you log in or you give consent, then that's how machine learning can actually play uh, like the magic because they can pull all the information they know about you and then they can kind of uh, infer like uh, uh, like uh, what is more likely to make you feel uh, a good item to see. Makes sense. Makes sense. I think that's very well covered. Now, when you think of the model in terms of the output matrix, what does success look like? What kind of an accuracy are you shooting for and how do you measure? What all metrics do you measure? Yeah, this is a very, very good question. Like, uh, we, and I think uh, like, uh, especially for e-commerce, we always ask ourselves, what is the right thing to do, right? So for example, at Etsy, we want to put the customer interest on the top of the list. So it's not about you come in and you buy and you click a lot of items and you buy a lot of items today. It's really meaningful to us. What the meaningful to us is not just about whether you buy or not, but also about whether you enjoy the experience of shopping or when you come back again. So in most at, at early days, or if you if there's a stop, they just start their journey on doing e-commerce or marketplace, the first metrics they will use is likely to be either click-through rate or purchased. They usually give different weight on different actions. So under the hood, every action, no matter you buy something, you favorite something, you click something, they will all map to some score. And it's a business decision that how you optimize like your 
objective function, basically what you want to target for. But like in a company like Etsy, because we favor long-term relationship, not one-time relationship. And so another thing which is important to us is how often you come back, right? So we want to make sure that uh, uh, the, we are not optimized for the short-term or the one-time shopping, but more about the long-term, which, which is make sure people feel they buy something they love, they come back again and again, again. So for us, it's more about balance between how frequently you will come to our website and how much you will enjoy the site, including how long you stay with the site and how likely you will stay after the purchase or, or how likely you come back again the next time you're looking for a gift. I think all those signal, depending on company and depending on the, 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 the kind of the goal of the company, they will tweak those weightings. But generally speaking, um, most of the marketplace is playing again about balance short-term and long-term and also balance profit and also um, the experience. And I think there's no right answer to fit all. And this is to some extent is a business decision that every CEO usually will work with their CPO and their uh, designer to figure out what is the company strategy. So you really need to take a look about what did the company try to maximize for, right? I think that's, uh, that's um, like what I see in the industry. Earlier, you mentioned um, something interesting. You mentioned that your perspective has really evolved, you know, as a student versus an engineer versus a scientist versus an exec. Can you, can you shed some more light? Yes. Um, I think maybe I can give a, a com comparison. Officially, I know maybe some people, they are still early in their career. They just finished their school or they are still in the school. Um, if when I was in a school, there's something very public called Kego contest, which basically people put this input and output data, like this labeling data online. And what our goal is to use our mathematical skill or the technology we learn. And the winner is basically the one who come up with the best algorithms, right? So one of the example is Kego and the other one is Netflix competition a few years ago, where people try to predict uh, what movie people want to watch in the next. And if you see all the paper surrounding those competition or Kego context, it's all about algorithm. It's all about using the most shining and machine learning tweaking parameters, trying to beat by 0.1%. And when I say my perspective evolve is that, uh, just like I mentioned in the early of today's talk, uh, your training data is, is to something biased. Like it or not, it comes with noise, right? So if your data is already noise, and optimize for noisy data doesn't really bring good long-term solution for your customer. So what I shift my kind of perspective is more about, first, it's equally important to get a good quality of data so you can produce a good quality of machine learning model. And the second thing is that uh, when you deliver machine learning model, you also need to balance like simplexity, interpretability, and also um, like a, how accurate they are. So it's, it's kind of a balance of many things. There's no really one good matrix, or it's not just about whoever using the best algorithms should get the reward, but more about really working backwards from what is the problem you really want to deliver? What is the magical experience you want to deliver to your customer? And focus on 
solving the problem, but not using the most fancy advanced technology. I think that's what I naturally evolved when I start to work in industrial company in academic in my early days, which I probably more care about, can I come with something very creative that no one ever think of before? But now I'm more care about, am I really solving something that our customer will feel, wow, this is really nice, we have this. Continuing our flow there, you know, as you're building out the model, measuring for its accuracy, I was curious if there were any experiences uh, you could share in things going right or things going wrong and any lessons learned as you try to launch this model and, 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 and again, it's like constantly evolving these models. So any experiences you can share, um, especially the bad ones, that would be very helpful. Oh, bad ones. So, you know, the, the, the fun fact here is almost every company, especially e-commerce company or technology company, the way they judge uh, the outcome of a machine learning model is using a technique called A-B test. So the idea of A-B test is very similar to the, the, the way we develop our COVID vaccine. Since now we have so many vaccines ready is that you have a control group, you have a treatment group, right? So for the treatment group, you give them a new, like a machine learning kind of experience and the control group, you give them the current solution or the old, like a, a machine learning experience. And then you define what is good means to you. It can be bring you more profit. It can mean people come more often, depending on how you define your success. And, and, and we all, of course, every company has their own secret or like how they care about business magic, but you have to have a score system. And then you run an A-B test. And then you learn the outcome of every test. And then you decide whether the new solution is better than the old one or not. And here's the trick is that uh, um, if you uh, not just finish your statistical class, you probably don't know the concept, but there's a concept called p-values. And of course, p-value, you can look at uh, the Wikipedia, you need to first understand what is the neural hypothesis, or people sometimes refer this about statistically insignificant, right? But in, in a layman's way of saying that is that uh, when you see an outcome that looks good, is that uh, just lucky? Or it really means something is there? Remember when you do this kind of A-B test, you only, you, you only do A-B test for like say two weeks and you make a decision. And I, I think uh, there's one time we made a mistake is that uh, our control group and our treatment group are not randomly sampled or not equally distributed. So an example you can think about if my control is all male and my treatment is all female, and then I say, oh, the treatment is better than the control. No, 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 not necessary because they are just different, different, different type of people. And you, you like, I think not paying enough like a, a, like a focus on measuring success can also introduce another layer of problems that uh, eventually the judge need to be fair. And that decide, the judge decide to be fair, you need to also understand that the, the p-value, the concept of p-value, like she using 0.02 or 0.05. And of course, the larger the number, it means that the less likely you can trust the results. But the smaller number or the more rigorous the process, also means that you need to take more time to collect the data. 
And then it comes a problem is that uh, even you set up a perfect like A-B test, like your two groups are perfectly mixed and you made more, no mistake in comparing A and B, there are also something we call novelty effect, right? So I remember when I when my old days like working on e-commerce, I noticed that if I change the location of the checkout button, no matter where I put it, because people cannot find that. So the, the purchase rate will go down. It looks very, very bad on finance. But if you keep running experience for four weeks, then it will go up again because people know where the button is. Does this really mean that moving the button have really a significant impact on, on the algorithm? No. So the, the, this kind of is the, the, the second like, example that like, you could make a mistake on here. Yeah, I can go on and on and on. And the whole, the, the, the beauty and also the challenge of being an AI leaders is there are so many like a hole you can fall into without knowing that until you run into them. And that's why um, I always encourage people when they finish school and go to industry, they should have an open mind and also you know, keep their ears open and, and pay attention to all the possible mistakes you are going to make because you are going to make some mistake and that's okay. And next time you ask the right question, right? Are we perfectly mixed our control and treatment, for example? Now, switching gears, when you think about your team, the team that is building uh, this personalization framework, um, I'd love to understand how the team is structured. What kind of skill sets do you have in the team to go behind this problem? Instead of saying, uh, like you're saying that the team structure is more about today, we, we really believe that uh, the more people with diverse background, the less likely you will fall into a trap without noticing that. One example is that uh, I believe that uh, you cannot have a group of pure scientists. You have to have some people with engineering background. You don't want to come with a very fancy machine learning model that cannot be scaled in production, right? And on the other hand, sometimes engineers will feel that uh, machine learning is nothing more than a library. So all I need to do is download a library, use this library and give input and output, and then I'm going to get a model and problem solve, boom, so easy, right? And scientists will tell you, hey, I just mentioned about statistical significance problem, uh, experience design, or uh, a lot of uh, user study. And you also need to have a designer to make sure you really think about how you present your solution to a customer. Because a lot of machine learning today is not just a black box, uh, API power other service. There's a relationship between how user experience and they usually experience through a user interface. So you need to have a designer in the team. You need to have a product manager to make sure you think on behalf of a customer. So what I'm saying, I just give example about four roles, designer, engineer, product manager, and scientist. But in reality, it can even involve more people, even sometimes uh, analyst from finance to make sure you set the right metrics. So the, the modern design of this kind of uh, machine learning project is often the, a good blend of people with different backgrounds. So you can cover all the corners when you design your solutions. You talked about the diversity of skills that the team should have. 
as you think of the entire process from data labeling to model building to experimentation to rollout operationalization especially with respect to pipelines as well what's your perspective on the platform the data plus ai platform uh, in terms of making it accessible to everyone in the team making it more self service or democratizing i'd love to hear your thoughts on that yeah i think we kind of drift into a discussion about um, like uh, what is the platform or like what the platform's role in uh, AI machine learning solutions. You know, I think this is really a case by case. Um, the reason I'm saying case by case is really depends on the stage of your size of the companies or the size of your team. For most of the startup today, they, they outsource their platform to AWS or GCP or Microsoft. They are three popular choice, right? So no matter which one you go, you will have basic or most common platform support. And as you keep growing to the next stage, like uh, to the mid-size, there are so many these kind of, um, I would call SaaS company, kind of software or service company, right? So people can come to sell you about, hey, uh, here's for experiment management, here's for hyper-premise tunings, here's for uh, ML apps, Right. It's for automations, here's for visualizations. And you will have tons of, I would say, third-party vendor other than your cloud providers you can choose from. And all the way to the point, like say, if you're Amazon or Google or Facebook, then you have your own ecosystem that everything you build is highly customized, where you will have your own ML platform and even have your own uh, I would say a library to do the work so you can maximize the reusability. So the, the reality is it's a spectrum, it's a binary spectrum depending on the size of the company, depends on the complexity of the problem you want to solve, and also depending on the resources you have. So there's no one size fits all, but more about uh, knowing your limitation, knowing what is important to you, and you know, knowing when to buy, when to build. I think all of these questions is uh, a leader need to keep asking himself and, and use their wisdom to make the best choice. But the, the short answer is it's not a yes or no problem, but how much? If you can map this framework that you mentioned and now put it back in the context of Etsy, where, where do you stand in this spectrum? Yeah, of course, the Etsy is not a stop. We are S&P 500 company and we have millions of users, millions of items. And on the other hand, uh, Etsy is not a billion dollar company, so we cannot build everything on our own. And that's why I mentioned is a spectrum of both. We have our own philosophy about sometimes we decide to build, sometimes we decide to buy. And there are a lot of trade-off we always use. So here's how a process look like. We will ask ourselves what is important to us without thinking about anything else. Maybe we say a speed is very important. We need to get this done by next year, right? You can ask this, this is important to you. You can write down your criteria. We call it a scorecard. You can create a scorecard for a decision, like what is important to, to, to you. With the scorecard, then you can label the choice, like I build myself, or I, like we, we have very good relationship with Google, so we can say, oh, we can tell Google to build that for us. 
or we can say we find a company and you find a company, a different company, different kind of solutions. So when you have different choice, then you based on the criteria you just create, then you start to give score on each sale. And then eventually you look back and you usually can see what is the best choice you have. And sometimes it's a choice, it's, it's sometimes it's a trade-off. It's like you can go A or B, and it depends on how much money we want to spend on the project or how or whether we want to make this our competitive advantage or something we really feel is, is useful for us to become the leaders. And sometimes we just feel this, all we need is a pacifier solution. We just need to get this over so we can buy some time for other important priorities. And depending on the scorecard, then you make your choice. So I think at Etsy, um, as an S&P 500 company, and we are very technical driven, and we have a lot of people, uh, like uh, we have thousands of good people working on technology field, and they are a lot of things we decided to build ourselves. But on the other hand, we know the limitation. We cannot build everything ourselves. That's why, for example, we are not using our own data center. We put everything on Google and partner with the Google Cloud Platform for that reason because we feel it's more economic for us to partner with Google on this kind of setup. And I think this is more about uh, the, as Etsy keep grow and keep evolve, some decision we feel is perfect right five years ago, may not that ideal. And that's the time you can always revisit your choice and ask yourself, should I change my mind? Is there an example of a module that you um, decided to build yourself? Any any one key example that comes to mind? Yes, we, for example, we, we really value about privacy. We really think about um, like, a, we, we will never, like a, there's a paper uh, when the Netflix competition, we talk about predicting which movie people want to like, a, like a watch next. And there's a paper actually talk about by using those data, they can reverse engineering and guess who is the person or that the person is living, which is difficult and probably how much income. It's so creepy, you know, if you're thinking that way, people will feel their privacy is not being respected. So one thing which at Etsy, for example, we decided to build internally is we ask ourselves, can we even put this data or outsource this data? And, and that's why, like say, if we want to know more about a user, all about the user's knowledge we want to keep inside Etsy instead of putting um, somewhere else or give this outsource to a third party vendor to do this prediction for us. And there are many reasons for doing that. The one is of course, privacy and security. This is top of the mind for us. And the second thing is that we really feel these data are very valuable and we want to know our customer deeply so we can deliver the best experience for them. We feel that we can be the best in class search and discovery. For example, that's our company strategy. We keep talking about our investor relationship. We want to build our best. And so there are some strategy like we decide to build ourselves, including our search engine is, is, is built by Etsy itself. So I think that there are a few of these kind of choice we uh, usually think about first, do we want to be the best? Do we want to make that our mode? And the second thing is that like, uh, is there any like a safety privacy or security concept. So I think those things will usually play uh, uh, in a very important role when we decide to build ourselves. Totally makes sense. Now, as you build out your platform, clearly, like you said, you have a large number of engineers with different backgrounds. 
And also you have non-tech people, marketers, product managers, sales, and so on. How are there things in particular that you're doing so that you're enabling them to harness the power of data and AI that that is being developed within within your team? I mean, that's another thing, a great example about something we decide to invest and make ourselves. Uh, at Etsy, for example, we we believe that, that we need to democratize AI and machine learning and enable every engineer to have ability to do some machine learning work. And that's why we always invest um, training and invest um, uh, building a enablement team that enable others. And we always uh, ask ourselves, like, uh, we, we, we want to make sure that uh, we not just invest both on short-term and long-term, but understand the need of infrastructure and platform. Because those things will also become a domain expert to help us to educate the product engineer, for example. Right? And, um, and my, my feeling is that uh, um, the internally and externally, we have something called Coders Craft, which will write a lot of technical article. Internally, we also have a lot of uh, portal, document portals that we collect about what's the best practice internally. We call it the paved pace and unpaved pace. Of course, we want the people to have a choice to try something new, like a new language, a new tool, but we also have a recommended paved pace Like uh, we want you to, if you don't know nothing, it's your first day of job, this is probably the safe path, follow this process, you can get your job done. And I think this kind of investing in, in, in this documentation portal, we also have this kind of, uh, kind of uh, we call it the uh, expert group, a working group. We have people, uh, senior people who are providing feedback, reviewing document for the new folks and junior uh, engineer and scientists. And all this investment on cultural and mechanism process to ensure, ensure that, that we, we, we kind of set the best practice and a good culture because as a company keep growing in such a, a rapid speed, then we, we find the need of uh, investing in the knowledge sharing and invest in knowledge preserving, preservation and also to make sure that uh, everyone can get the tool and the knowledge they need to get their job done. We even install our own stack overflow right, for people to ask a question. This is another example that the, uh, you really, really need to invest in create an ecosystem that people can learn and grow together. That's, those are great examples. I want to wrap up with the final question here, which is, um, as you see the future, like what's next based on all the different trends that you're seeing? Um, this year, I'm going to uh, serve as a senior program committee in the web conference in Leon, uh, which the Triple W conference is one of the best conferences talking about web technology. And the track I serve uh, as a senior program committee this year is uh, user modeling and personalizations. I, I really believe that, that with the technology we have today, everyone should have the right to get a personalized experience when they interact with a website or an app. So your, your, your feeds and my feeds should look very different. I think this is very common on a lot of like a video website or even you watch your movie. But I think on e-commerce side like Etsy and 
we hope that uh, people can really feel this website is meant for you. So you come to here, you can feel that the website is trying to understand who you are, understand what is your preference, understand your need, or even I call it think ahead is before you ask, we remind you that uh, it's time to buy a birthday gift for your wife, right? That is what I call a, a magical moment is that uh, you forgot and we actually remind you that it's time for you to shop for gift. And I think when, when website provide lots of convenience by telling experience to each individual, the, 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 the future of interaction or like the future of human life will be very different because uh, as we are advanced to the technology, I think it's always important to look back is what is the problem we want to solve? And the problem we want to solve is that uh, we don't want the, 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 the e-commerce website just look like a, 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 a tool to solve a need, but the more about some, some, some place you can come you can browse, you can kill your time. It's the recreation and fulfill the need that the boundary is better to be blurred in my opinion. And I think that will be very cool to see like the feature look like that you interact with any website and then you know the more you're using the website, the better experience you are going to have. I think this positive like a like loop is going to make a huge difference. And, and that's what I believe will be the future. Fantastic. Um, Chu Cheng, always a pleasure connecting. I love our conversation. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Same here. Thank you, Sandeep. Thank you for having me here. <laughs>